Welcome. This is Lawyer Up. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here with my law partner, Jack Dorora, and we are talking to a friend of our program, Dr. Jonathan Groner. He is the medical director of the Center for Pediatric Trauma Research at Nationwide Children's Hospital. He is a pediatric surgeon, and last time he was on the podcast, we talked to him about uh, the death penalty and his opposition to that. This time, we're talking to him about gun violence and um, you know his close association with uh, the victims of gun violence. Uh, welcome, Dr. Groner, back to the pro- uh, program. Thanks for having me back. Hey, when was the first time, doctor, that uh, you had to treat a youngster for a gunshot wound, and what struck you most about that? Well, um, when I was a general surgery resident in Milwaukee during a time when uh, firearm violence was pretty common. And I, I know one night I took care of four patients in a row of varying ages, all of whom died, um, which was quite traumatic. But I remember there was definitely a young one in that group, um, teenager probably. Um, and the thing that struck me then and stays with me is that it's often um, sort of not like Hollywood. There's not blood everywhere. Often they just have a tiny little hole, sometimes two, where a bullet went in and came out, but sometimes just where it went in, and it's about the size of your pinky, and uh, you rush them out to the operating room, and the, if the bullet's gone the wrong thing, their entire blood volume is in their chest or in their belly, and they, they die right in front of you. So that's the thing, is that the external wounds are tiny, there's not a lot of blood loss, and yet sometimes they're dying. Sometimes they're talking to you, but they're dying, you know, sometimes there's people often um, will know um, kind of an impending sense of doom, you know, please help me, please help me. And sometimes they still die. How many people have you treated for gunshot wounds, would you say? Uh, Over my career, uh, definitely hundreds. Um, Fortunately now just working on the pediatric side, it's a little less common, but that is less true since the start of the pandemic. I mean, for reasons that aren't clear, the pandemic doubled the number of patients uh, that we were seeing for firearm injuries. So if you take the same time period, 2019 versus 2020, it doubled and the deaths doubled also. Doctor, it might be helpful for our listeners to, to maybe understand a little bit more about what you do as the medical director and as a pediatric surgeon, and then how that relates to seeing these victims of gunshot wounds in your you know, everyday practice. Sure. Well, we live in a state that has a uh, state-mandated trauma system. And uh, so the rules of engagement are if you haven't hit your 16th birthday in the state, you're considered a child. So a child with a serious injury would go to a children's hospital. An adult with a serious injury goes to an adult hospital. That's a trauma center. So um, Columbus has one pediatric level one trauma center. It has two adult level one trauma centers and I think two level two adult trauma centers. So basically uh, at a pediatric, at a children's hospital, you typically see uh, uh, kids under the age of 16. And I would add that uh, I believe Children's Hospital is the first level one trauma center for children in Ohio and is the only one in central Ohio. So we see 
1,600 injured children a year. And then as the as a pediatric surgeon, you would be called in on cases that may uh, need uh, some type of surgical intervention. And I assume almost all gunshot victims would fall into that class uh, classification. Oh, that's correct. I mean, trauma, meaning injury from external forces, not like the psychological trauma, different world, is typically thought of as a surgical disease. And we have a, a, a system so that we get notified when someone with serious injuries, including gunshot wounds, uh, come in. Um, so currently in my sort of semi-retired state, I only have to spend two nights a month inside the hospital. I used to spend three or four. And like when you kind of do the math, how many years I've been there, I spent over two years of my life sleeping in the hospital. What is the youngest uh, child that you've uh, seen from a gunshot wound? The youngest child I have seen from a gunshot wound has definitely been a toddler. I don't believe I've ever seen an infant, but um, I've definitely seen toddlers uh, on more than one occasion. Um, I know many years ago, I took care of a three or four year old who was one of the hospital employees kids where an older kid in the house had found a gun and had uh, discharged it at the toddler and had killed the toddler. That was, that was, feels like a lifetime ago, but I know it was since I've been in Columbus that that happened. I was wondering with your experience then, are most of the gunshots accidental shooting, shooting by family members or, you know, intentional uh, type of, um, of actions that you see? Um, so it's a great question and it's a complicated answer. Um, first of all, be, can, it can be hard to ascribe intentionality involving toddlers and young children. For example, if a nine and 10 year old finds a gun and fires it at his friend, is that intentional or not? I mean, they don't really understand death as a concept and so forth, so it's, it's, it's difficult. I would say um, many years ago, we did a study, like over 20 years ago, of all the kids admitted their gunshot wounds. And we found out is that um, most of them happened in the home and that the big risk factors were, uh, um, I mean, and among the perpetrators, Many of them were family members, and among family members, many of them were brothers. So if you lived in a home that had a handgun and you had a brother, uh, it seemed high risk. I would also add that the distribution of firearm injuries across the, across the city is highly variable. Certain zip codes are very high and certain zip codes are very low. At the time we did that study, again, over 20 years ago, 03, 05, 06, 07, which had a tiny percent of the city's population, but it had a significant percentage of the pediatric firearm injuries. That distribution has changed a little over time, um, but they tend to be concentrated. And then one of the, I say one other thing about intentionality. If you take all firearm injuries across the board in the United States and just do some simple statistics from the CDC's website that tracks that, which is called Whiskers, W-I-S-Q-A-R-S, I can't remember what it stands for, but 60% of all firearm fatalities in the United States are suicides, 60%. All ages, all, so, which is an important number that's not talked about enough, right? Because, you know, people, uh, what's his name, Wayne LaPierre, when he ran the NRA, you say, you know, you know, what you need for a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Well, what about a good guy and the bad guy are the same guy, right? So, so but the, also there's a tremendous racial disparity when looking at firearm homicides. 
So if you look, you know, state by state or across the country, there are definitely states where the firearm homicide rate for black males uh, under the age of, say, 21 is 10 times what it is for the white population. So firearm homicide is largely an African-American, largely male problem, whereas suicide, including firearm suicide, tends more towards the white population. So it's a complicated issue, but I think it's important to state that um, most of the injuries are caused by, by handguns. So I think that's also not emphasized enough. I mean, hunting in Ohio is relatively safe. I've done two informal studies of hunting and the number one injury mechanism is falling from a tree. You know, I don't personally hunt, but I know that people do. You have to stand way up in the tree and wait for, you know, Bambi to walk by. And if you fall asleep, you fall out of the tree. Your firearm injuries are actually the minority of injuries from hunting. Why is hunting safe? Long-barreled weapons, uh, adult supervision. Uh, Long-barreled weapons cannot be fired by a child very easily. So, I mean, there's a lot of built-in safety measures for hunting. Um, handguns are the ones that are... Um, the most common vector in what I see. You mentioned uh, the racial disparity with homicides and with suicides. What about with these accidental shootings? As you said, you know, it might be in the home. It might be by another family member. Is there any distribution that, that is unique in, in those cases? I mean, I think the answer is yes. Um, I mean, Columbus is in um, the middle of a fairly serious uh, firearm trauma epidemic. And a lot of it has been driven by um, uh, organized criminal networks. And there's a lot of gun ownership within those criminal networks. And I think um, that there's a halo effect. Like if you're in a gang and you have a gun and um, you obviously got to go home sometime, right? So, I mean, there's just a lot of guns in those neighborhoods. Or if you're not in a gang, but you live in a neighborhood where you hear gunfire every night. And uh, so you buy a gun. And so I just think that... Um, my personal experience is that the preponderance, but not the absolute, all of them, but the, most of the pediatric, the unintentional injuries do involve, you know, inner city, largely African-American population. That's just been my recent experience. But I think there's a relationship between the unintentional injuries and the intentional injuries and in that um, sort of violence begets violence. And if you live in a neighborhood where you're hearing a lot of gunshots and there's certain neighborhoods like that in the city, you know, you're more likely to have a gun. People who buy guns for protection are least likely to store them in a safe fashion, right? The standard for firearm storage and storage is locked, unloaded with the ammunition stored separately. I mean, very few people who feel that they need to protect themselves in their homes are willing to do that. So, um, but on balance, the research shows that the presence of a firearm in the home, you know, increases the risk of injury to the individuals at a far greater proportion than it sort of increases the deterrence value. Let's go back to that subject of zip code that you talked about maybe 10 minutes ago. I've heard you speak, maybe it was on a TED talk about, I think it was called the police heat map. Right, no, this is actually made by uh, EMS. So, emergency, okay. so Columbus Fire makes heat maps. Okay. And the heat map shows where the 911 calls are for... Uh, firearm injuries, and we did it specifically for kids. And there's high concentrations sort of along the 70 and 71 corridor, sort of the west side and the north side. The interesting thing about those heat maps is that um, there's another part of the city government that does a heat map for uh, unsafe sleeping deaths, which is like, and I see those kids too, sadly. So 
co-sleeping, you know, child suffocates because they're sleeping in the same bed as a parent or things like that, which, which is happens, does happen, sadly. And basically, the heat maps for the unsafe sleep deaths and for the firearm deaths overlap. It's the same map. And what it shows is that pediatric firearm trauma is like unsafe sleeping deaths. These are diseases of poverty. So, uh, I mean, in the highly impoverished neighborhoods, um, you see more firearm trauma and you see more unsafe sleeping deaths. And sometimes the borders of these neighborhoods are just um, minuscule. You know, I'm speaking to you from 09. I can almost see 05 from my window and the firearm death rate between those two zip codes is strikingly different. You were talking about the relationship between guns in the home and the likely and the greater likelihood of injury to kids. One of the authors of one of those studies was one of your physician brethren who was with the NIH or maybe the CDC years back. And I think he came under fire because that just seemed like such an unpopular idea to be castigated. It was interpreted as castigating gun owners, but there really was a statistical tie. Are you familiar with that gentleman? I can't remember his name. I know a few people working in that field. Um, and it's interesting because uh, for reasons that aren't clear to me, um, a number of the nurses I work with have spouses in law enforcement. And I heard a story once about a picnic where all of you know, her husband's in law enforcement, the brothers on law enforcement, they all come over for the 4th of July party. What they all, they all do is they all put their guns on top of the refrigerator. She comes in to get, you know, a Coke or something, and the kids have the chair up against the refrigerator trying to get the guns down, right? So, I mean, you know, I mean, kids, um, young kids are very curious. Guns are bright and shiny. They tend to explore them. You know, it's just, I mean, that's like natural behavior. I mean, there are studies where kids have been given firearm safety classes and then put in rooms with unloaded guns and they will take them out and point them at each other and pull triggers. You know, it's just, it's kids are not cognitively able to protect themselves from handguns until a certain age of maturity. And the sad thing is technology exists to make those guns safe. The technology exists. There is technology where the gun can have an actuator in it and the owner could wear a ring on their trigger hand and the gun will not fire unless that ring is touching or in proximity to the gun. There's other types of, and that stuff exists. And think about when you walk out to your car and your car key fob and the car goes beep, beep when you touch it. That technology exists for guns. Guns could be many times safer, um, but they're not. Guns are also not regulated by the Consumer Product Safety Commission, right? I mean, there's more regulations on a toaster than on a gun. Am I correct that you've spoken to legislators about this? And if so, what kind of reaction did you get? Um, I've been to the state house a couple of times um, on various issues. My experience of testifying was a little like uh, talking to a brick wall. Um, I mean, in the old days, you just hold up their newspapers. You know, now they hold up their iPads. But um, the Ohio State Highway Patrol officers, who are responsible for the security of the state house, testified in opposition to concealed carry. And I thought that gentleman's testimony was more powerful than mine because he said, you know, we're responsible for your safety and we don't think this is a good idea, but they passed it anyways. Um, uh, Governor Taft actually proposed a, uh, a uh, um, safe storage bill and I think even came to the state house to testify for it. And that also uh, did not go anywhere. I mean, if you're going to get involved in this again, you have to be, you have to be used to people, you know, um, 
there are people there who are definitely going to make you feel uncomfortable. You know, I spoke at a rally once in downtown Columbus and there were people on the perimeter, you know, marching with their appeared to be AR-15s. And I felt pretty anxious about it. But the speak guy was speaking at, after me was Mayor Coleman and there's some guys with him in blue jeans and heavy coats. And I figured if they had him covered, they probably had me covered. So, but I mean, but I mean, it's amazingly, and you won't hear me say uh, gun control. I know the president was talking that 115 was going to ask him about gun control. I think it's not about gun control, it's about gun safety. I mean, you need a license to own a car. Does anybody talk about car control? You know, no, right? And there's some common sense gun safety things that we could really do that could really cut the carnage. And I think one of the difficulties with reducing the carnage is that the people most impacted are severely underrepresented, you know, typically low income, largely minority. I mean, if, if white kids were dying in the numbers that we're seeing, you know, I think we'd be doing better about this, frankly. I agree, uh, doctor. In my mind, it's, it's never going to happen in this country that we're going to end gun ownership. It, it just is too entrenched in our society for that to ever happen, at least in my lifetime and probably my children. So it's all about gun safety. Um, but back to more of a micro issue of, of the different um, zip codes. Do you know of any targeted effort to address that problem in those uh, areas by either law enforcement or health uh, officials? So um, there have been some minimal and somewhat uncoordinated efforts. Um, but there is a proposal before city council that they are allegedly funding called uh, GVI or the Group Violence Intervention. Um, sort of the, uh, the godfather of GVI is uh, uh, Kennedy at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, uh, David Kennedy. Um, he, his book is called like Stop the Shooting or something like that. You know, I've read his book. I've, the idea is that you have to target the groups, not just the individuals, and that you have to um, you have to police for maximal impact. Basically, this is not about you know getting rid of police support. The police are very much engaged in this process. But I mean, you know, sort of like the flip side of GVI is something like uh, you know Mayor Giuliani's like broken windows. Like if you if you prosecute kids for breaking windows and graffiti and, you know, then the police have no legitimacy in poor neighborhoods. In fact, people will run when they see the police. If you're going after the people who are committing the violent crimes, you know, then you actually have some legitimacy. And uh, um, I've been very impressed by the program, but it also requires that you actually offer some level of social services that people are perceived, perceived as the bad guys. And it took me a long time to realize this, but, you know, we talked about, um, in our previous podcast, I have taken care of both murderers and their victims. So I've taken care of sort of shooters and their victims. And one thing, at least on the, on the kid side, a lot of things end up switching places and the people who get shot are very traumatized. The people doing the shooting are often very traumatized, you know, and these programs, like there's a program called scared straight where like you take the kids to the morgue and show them bodies. I mean, these kids are already scared. I mean, a lot of them have unstable homes, um, they live in poor neighborhoods. I mean, they hear shootings at night. So that just, doesn't, you know, but if you offer social services to the people who are perceived as perpetrators, sometimes you can get them to change their lifestyles and move them out, you know, but you have to offer them some opportunities too. You have to offer them jobs. And, and uh, so I think that is, that program has been proposed. I think the uh, NNSC 
National Network of State Communities actually did a research project in town. I don't think the results have been published yet or have been made public yet. But then the next step would be actually to create this model. For it, work, for it to work, there really has to be fidelity to the model. And I've seen examples in other cities when it was funded, the shootings went down. When the funding ran out, the shootings went up. And it, I mean, it's a big goal. It's a heavy lift and it involves everybody being on the same page. It means the mayor and law enforcement and community leaders all have to be on the same page that we are gonna go after the people who are doing the shooting and we're gonna stop that. And they're not gonna be a revolving door where they go into jail overnight and come out. They're gonna go away for a long time. If they agree to not shoot, we can offer them some social services with housing and so forth. I think um, that personal experience sometimes is is a great motivator to change uh, behavior. Like you said, uh, I uh, represented along with a group of people, a, um, a trampoline manufacturer when I was a young lawyer and all of our cases dealt with uh, young people falling off, injuring them, uh, injuring their spines. It was just a sad experience to be a part of that whole process. And my kids were never allowed around trampolines. So I got to imagine that what you see every day or, or not every day, but what you see in the uh, emergency room with gunshot victims uh, has shaped your perspective. Do you mind telling our listeners, maybe giving them more of a description of what it is actually like to treat a child of a gunshot wound? I'm sure. I mean, I can, uh, I can't share exact details, but uh, you know, I had a case a couple of years ago and I remember it had been a really, we do 24 hour shifts when we're on call. It had been a pretty busy day. I'd done a bunch of operations. And just when I thought I might go get dinner, you know, we got this, you know, the pager goes off, you know, level one trauma gunshot wound. And I, I run down to the emergency room with my residents and um, just as the EMS are rolling in and they looked nervous, which is usually a bad sign. And they weren't walking. They were kind of trotting with this patient on the gurney. And uh, uh, when she went by me, uh, the thing I remember thinking is that she was uh, African-American. I thought, boy, she looks really, her feet look really pale. And um, sure enough, um, she had a very small entrance wound on her chest. And she actually been in a party where uh, uh, another relative had also been shot. Fortunately, went to another hospital. And um, so obviously, this kid's going straight to the operating room. And uh, we get her up there and um, start doing the operation. You know, open her chest, and the lung is just bleeding, bleeding, bleeding. And it's really bad. And, and at one point, her heart stopped. Oh gosh, you know, is this kid dead? But um, we did the little defibrillator thing and it came back. And uh, um, I, uh, by that time, one of my residents had the presence of mind to call one of the heart surgeons who does this every day and came in. And uh, we ended up had to taking out a, a piece of her lung and she survived. She did, she did great. I and mean, she really did great. But, you know, I saw her back in the clinic and her, uh, the other girl had been shot came too. And, you know, like, you know, five seconds of terror both these girls have huge scars on them. Both of them will never, you know, be the same. I, th I mean, they're doing relatively well. You know, I mean, they don't have a permanent disability, but obviously a very traumatizing experience. And the thing that struck me was that um, it's just not that uncommon in their community network for this to happen to kids, you know? I mean, their uh, guardian was like really sad and really loves both kids dearly, but not shocked the way someone from, I don't know, Upper Arlington would be if two kids in your family got shot. It's just, there is so much violence in that neighborhood. 
that it's just not that rare. And it'd be really nice to be able to change that dynamic. I think there's data that shows that when there's a shooting in a neighborhood, it impacts the victim, obviously, the perpetrator talked about the family, but it also impacts financially. I mean, if you can't appeal to someone's you know, heart and soul, can you at least appeal to their pocketbook? I mean, you guys, the, um, the downtown shopping mall whole life cycle happened when I moved here. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what it was called. City center. City center, right. And what was the beginning of the end for city center? There was a homicide. Do you remember that? A kid got killed. Sure. Right. You know, and just the impact. I mean, other factors played a role too, but you know, that's just um, part of the deal for it. it. So violence has a horrible impact on neighborhoods. So the firearm injury stuff, I mean, it begins the instant they're injured. It doesn't end when they leave the hospital. I actually had another patient a couple of years ago whose injuries were so bad. He spent almost an entire year in the hospital. And when he finally got better, the family decided it would be safer if they moved to Chicago. <laughs> I mean, Chicago, you know, apparently they had a lot of family there, but you know, again, he'd been shot. His sibling had also been shot. You know, this is the type of thing we deal. We, we deal with families who get destroyed even when, you know, they survive. I've seen some experts refer to gun violence as a public health hazard. And I think you have as well. That's correct. I mean, I think, um, you know, the public health model, you know, for, we consider like, you know, to say that firearm trauma is a disease, you have to have susceptibility patterns. We clearly have that. You have to have a vector. I mean, the vector for uh, COVID-19 is a, not a coronavirus. The vector for firearm trauma is handguns. Again, it's mostly handguns. I mean, I agree with John's statement. We'll never get rid of all the guns. I mean, I think um, I would be happy if we could show that we have the ability to regulate them and try to keep them out of children's hands. I mean, we are definitely awash in guns. Um, I see it as this mighty river moving through Ohio. You know, if we could just shut off a few of the tributaries or slow them down, we can make things better. Um, but I mean, public health interventions work, right? I mean, uh, as a youngster, the carnage from, from motor vehicle crashes was insane. You know, I was actually in a car that rolled over when in the 1970s, and I didn't have my seatbelt on. It's amazing I didn't die. which is really lucky the car door didn't open, which is what usually happens. And I actually did okay. I mean, Cars are much safer, and we've really driven that down. We can, you know, it is possible to drive down the injury rate from farm. I mean, it is doable. It just takes people to use a public health approach, and there are some things that are proven. And we know that states that enact, you know, good common sense firearm safety legislation, things like universal background checks. Uh, I mean, the breeding campaign has a bunch of them listed on the website. That those things actually do do better. You know, when people still own guns, people still hunt, but they do do better. Um, and that would be really helpful. I mean, there's, I don't know if you're going to bring this up or not, but there's really no reason for civilians to have AR-15s. And there's just not a reason for that. We can see, I, and I, I see the mass killings in a slightly different part of the Venn diagram than the, the sort of daily trauma that I see. But I did have um, one of the Sandy Hook parents was in my living room holding up the photos of his two kids. It was, a, it was I think, Barton, you know. These are the two kids that went to school. You know, this is the one who didn't come home that day. And it's, it's really hard. Um, and I've spent a lot of time in another part of my life in, 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 the, in the Middle East, you know, in Israel and the, the West Bank and so forth. And you'll see guns everywhere there, particularly in, in Jerusalem, but mainly in people with wearing uniforms, right? Firearm gun ownership among civilians is low. And uh, several years ago, um, Israel spends tons on military, feels like it always needs to have readiness. 
So they used to have the uh, um, soldiers used to take their guns home on weekend on leave. And I can remember as a kid sitting on an Egged bus with a, and the guy sitting next to me had a machine gun in his lap and the clips are in his back there. Well, Israel stopped doing that. The suicide rate in the IDF fell significantly, like 40% by not having them take their guns home. I mean, again, you know, it's a class example of intervening on the vector. So, I mean, Israel, believe me, the country is stressful enough. I've been there a bunch of times. They don't really need people taking home automatic weapons. So, I mean, this is an example. You, you can do public health interventions. Soldiers still have their guns in Israel, you know, um, and the whole issue of how that works in the West Bank is a whole other story. But, uh, but you know, so I think that um, um, public safety interventions do work. And the United States stands way, way out in terms of um, um, the number of firearm deaths compared to other industrialized countries. I don't think I told this to, uh, to John, but when I was on a grand jury duty last June, for two weeks, I listened to roughly 270 cases, and about a third of those involved some kind of a gun violation. It was having a gun in a car without a concealed carry, having a, a gun being owned by a former felon, uh, a few times where the gun was actually used in the commission of a crime. But I was stunned that a gun came out one third of the matters that we were asked to render an indictment. But I mean, there's, there's research on that. I mean, someone did a project where they looked at self-reported self-defensive gun uses. I can't think of the name of the author, but um, you know, this guy, there's a guy named John Lott, who I think might be an attorney who did this study. You know, he has Let, let me interrupt you for a second. Regrettably, he is an attorney. <laughs> so John Lott wrote this book called More Guns, Less Crime, where he basically did this survey. They called up someone and said, do you own a gun? Yes. Have you ever used it to defend yourself? Yes. Click next call. You know, the more detailed study, which was done by um, the Harvard School of Public Health, is it answered two questions. The first two questions, yes. Then you got a third question, which was, describe your defensive, self-defensive gun use. And it was like, I mean, it was literally like, well, my boyfriend and I broke up, and he said the TV was his, but it was really mine. And he came over to get the TV, so I had to get my gun out to show him who was the boss. You know, I mean, so many self-described self-defensive gun uses were would have been an indictment by a grand jury or, you know, so typically illegal. So I think that that's an important thing to point out that um, true self-defensive gun use is actually pretty rare and you have to weigh that. I mean, everything in life is, is you know, risk assessment, you know, benefits versus risks. I mean, when every time I operate on someone, it's benefits versus risks, you know. Um, I can certainly do harm by operating on people. And the same thing about gun ownership, it's like getting a vaccine, benefits versus risk, you know. I jumped in line to get a vaccine because I didn't want to get COVID, but you know, so gun ownership, it theoretically confers a safety benefit, particularly if you live in a neighborhood where there's a lot of gun violence, but the odds of someone coming into your house and wanting to do violent harm to you, if you're kind of an average citizen is much, much lower than the risk of someone using the gun for self-harm or harming someone in your family. By the way, I think the name of that author you, you were referring to is Hemingway. Or Heming A, something to that effect. Hemingway. I don't think it's an ING. Yes, David Hem. Yeah, Harvard School. Hemingway. Yes. Right. Right. The other thing is, I've read the FBI stats and uh, where they are able to find the the assailant. In fifty percent of those situations, the assailant and the victim know each other. So, the in other words, very low chance of you being shot by somebody you don't know. 
Right. And I think that's, that's another important point because when a few years ago, when the sort of the male gun ownership market was pretty saturated, the gun stores turned to the potential female gun owners. I mean, they advertised in like ladies home journal and good housekeeping. And their message was, you know, a handgun's like a fire extinguisher, but it'll own it and never use it. And, and I'm, I'm not making that up. That was really one of the ads. But, uh, and the point is, um, the vast majority of people who harm women are known to the women, right? I mean, harm by strangers is actually really small. Significant numbers of women who show up in the emergency room with injuries are victims of domestic violence. So, you know, you carry your gun around the house, you know, you're going to wear it in bed. You know, it, it becomes this uh, argument that becomes ridiculous after a while. Uh, I mean, domestic violence cannot be effectively combated by uh, increased firearm ownership. And it's, I mean, the problem is real, no doubt. I know from personal experience too, that children will find a gun if you have it in the house. And years ago, one of my private detectives gave me a gun and I told him, I don't want a gun. I don't need a gun, but he gave it to me. It was still in the package. I put it up in the closet and uh, put it under some stuff and told my wife, I'll give it to somebody else. I'll figure out what we're going to do with it. Not a week later, we get a call from the neighbor saying that uh, one of their kids was over with one of our kids and she told mom and dad that we have a gun. And so it was about an hour later that that gun found its way out of our house. And um, I've always thought about that. I tell young people uh, with young children that if they have a gun in their house, their children will find it uh, because you know, that the risk of that is so great. I would encourage our listeners, if they do own guns, to make sure they are locked up because as we've discussed, the chances of using that gun to protect yourself in your home is so minute. Uh, but the chances of your children finding it and, um, and uh, using it uh, accidentally is, is a lot greater, so... Yeah, I would add, I've actually taken care of kids who were injured or killed in that type of tragedy. The gun that everybody thought was successfully hidden, but wasn't. And um, I mean, it's not the kid's fault. This is how kids explore the world. So uh, yeah, it was my father never owned guns, but uh, you know, I was known to find the power drill that I wasn't supposed to have access to and, and stuff like that. Um, my only experience with a gun as a child is I, uh, my uh, friend, whose father was my orthodontist, took us uh, skeet shooting one time, which involves firing a, a 12 gauge. And uh, I would have to, um, I was proudly, I hit the first one, but I missed the next nine. Um, and my shoulder was sore for a week. Um, the story has a sad ending because the orthodontist, uh, he eventually took his life with a handgun. He had um, some health issues. And so uh, not, not with the thing we were using for skeet shooting, but I do think that the risk of suicide from handguns is very, very real. And I think um, um, anybody who's struggled with mental health issues knows how hard that can be. And the studies on suicidal ideation among survivors, people who survive a suicide attempt will, will typically say it was 10 minutes or less from the time I decided to kill myself to the time I actually acted. And if you don't have a gun nearby, it can make a huge difference. And, and well, people say, well, if they don't shoot themselves, they'll die by some other method. Or, but, you know, it, there's a, the, the suicide has this 99 rule. 90% of firearm homicide, uh, suicides, 90% of firearm suicides are successful. 90% of people who die from, who survive 
a suicide attempt won't die from suicide. So I'll say that again, 90% of firearm suicides are successful. 90% of people who survive a suicide attempt won't die from suicide. So if you can get past it. So, you know, if you can take away the firearm, if someone has suicidal ideation, it will pass. If someone has a gun under their pillow, you know, it won't pass and they'll end up dead. By the way, before I forget, I want to, I want to compliment the, uh, the American Academy of Pediatricians in Ohio because they have been strong advocates for gun safety in the homes. And I remember when I was with the Kiwanis Club years back, we had a project where we funded the purchase of gun lock boxes that pediatricians were giving out for free just for trying to minimize the, the risk of gun injury at home. Right. I think there's certain uh, pediatricians have been very powerful advocates. Um, there are there is evidence that, for example, when a woman is pregnant, that the family is very, very safety motivated. And that's a good time to talk about firearm safety and house safety and so forth. Um, sort of the flip side of that, there have been states like Florida that have tried to litigate against having that safety conversation, which just seems insane, but that's true. So I think, you know, pediatricians, first of all, yes, I agree. The AAP in Ohio has been really out on this. I've met some of those people. They are brave people. I'm sure they get some pushback. And, um, but I think they're sort of speaking uh, truth to power. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that case because I followed it. Florida passed a statute that precluded pediatricians from asking about guns, just like pediatricians ask questions. Hey, do you have bleach lying around where it can be tampered with? Do you have rat poison where kids can access it? By the way, if you have a gun, you got to get it out of reach. The legislature passed a bill that precluded that kind of conversation. Suit was filed in federal court. It was declared unconstitutional. Fortunately, it went up to the, I think that's the 11th Circuit. And the 11th Circuit found it also to be unconstitutional. So doctors were allowed are allowed in Florida to have that kind of discussion. Hey, lawyers did a good thing there, huh? They did a very good thing. <laughs> and which, which, John, this won't surprise you, but I read some of the information from the legislature when they were passing this bill, and it was all anecdotal. There wasn't any statistic to support this notion that doctors talking about guns were as bad. It was just anecdotal. The legislators just thought it didn't make sense. Right. But I think that's a good point is that um, firearm, like legitimate firearm research in this country has been underfunded purposefully. Right. I mean, um, oh, I can't think of that Congress act where you're not allowed to, to, there's, there's a writer on every bill that uh, from I know what you're talking about. And the name escapes me as well. That was in the mid oh, the Dickey Amendment. The Dickey Amendment. There you go. Yeah, it's a good Jeopardy question. Yes, the Dickey Amendment expressly prohibits uh, funding for what I view as one of the greatest public health issues in this country. I mean, annual firearm deaths in the United States is in the tens of thousands. I mean, basically lose a Vietnam War's worth of deaths, uh, you know, less than every two years in this country, which is astounding. Do you have anything else we'd like, you'd like us to ask you or anything you want to add or John or Gonzo, do you have another question? Uh, I mean, I just want to add that I feel like um, Columbus has a historic opportunity to make a difference right now. 
that this uh, NNSC program, you know, that they call it GVI, has shown some real improvement in many major cities across the United States. And I think that um, in order for it to work, we have to show fidelity to the model. I think that people working on small projects, um, and some of the hospitals in town have projects where kids get shot, you know, they provide some sort of counseling that doesn't work, that uh, we definitely, let me uh, rephrase that. I have said before the city council that firearm injuries are a public health problem. I can't remember what word I use, a major public health problem. I mean, it's a disaster. We have an epidemic going on right now. I mean, if the number of um, kids that we're seeing shot was the same of number of kids coming in with some infectious disease, people would be really troubled, right? Um, so, and I don't know why the pandemic kicked off this wave of shootings. One thing is that schools are actually really safe. I mean, I know school shootings make the news. They make the news because they're really rare. Schools, you have adult supervision, you have warm meals, um, you're in a safe environment. And um, actually school teachers are empowered to report if they are concerned that a child's being injured in the home and so forth. Schools were a really important safety net that just got cut away last year in March. The shootings doubled. I think the NNSC program is a real opportunity to make a difference and I really hope the city will commit to it. Um, you know, I've spent a lot of time, I'm actually on the gun violence committee of the bread organization. We spent a lot of time researching this. I spent a lot of time talking to NNSC people. I've talked to a lot of other experts and a lot of other areas who've done it in other cities. I, I really think this offers a great opportunity and it would be a shame if we didn't take it. You know, I hope a year from now, you know, we could get back on a podcast and say, hey, we're actually really doing better than we were Dr. Groner is always uh, speaking to you as a wonderful intellectual and uh, informative experience. Uh, again, we thank you for the important work you do, your dedication to your patients and uh, your dedication to preventing uh, harm to other children. Um, uh, your time is invaluable and we thank you for spending some of it with us. Well, thank you very much, uh, gentlemen. Thanks for uh, bringing light to this important topic. I really appreciate it. I want to thank you, too, and I really am impressed with the breadth of your knowledge. For our listeners, you can find us at our website, Lawyer Up Columbus. You can download us using your favorite podcast on your phone. We'll be back with another legal or social justice issue in a month. Until then, remember to lawyer up. So long. <laughs>